conflict lessons that apply to us today. This morning we're going to continue that study. We're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 19. That's seven chapters. Those of you who are in the college group where I used to teach regularly, or those of you in SALT where I teach regularly now, are probably starting to panic. This guy can't get through seven verses. How are we going to survive seven chapters? I thought of just reading straight through all seven chapters and then saying, may God bless the reading of his word and sitting down. But uh, David and the rest of the staff didn't like that idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to take a look and get the feel for the whole section, find out what's going on, and then hopefully have an opportunity with any time remaining to look at some of the details. And what is going on in this section is that Joshua is dividing the promised land into tribal inheritances. Each tribe gets one piece of territory. Now, there are some exceptions. The uh, two and a half tribes had already received land on the east side of the Jordan. Moses gave it to them before the invasion of the promised land started. And the tribe of Joseph actually uh, was divided into two half tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they each got a territory. So in essence, Joseph got two pieces of land. And the other exception is the Levites. The Levites were not given any block of land. Instead, they were given cities and farms and and, uh, fields sprinkled throughout all the different tribal territories. And the idea there was since the Levites were the priests, they wanted them dispersed among all the tribes so that they could minister. Let me just read the first five verses of chapter 14. It kind of summarizes this process. Now these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritances were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Moses had granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. For the sons of Joseph had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. So the Israelites divided the land just or exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses. See, back in Exodus 26, God had instructed Moses that when you go into the promised land, I want you to divide it up by lots. Now, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, one guy's to get an acre and a half lot and somebody else is to get a different size lot. What he means by lots is the way you decide who gets which piece of land is by casting lots. And we're not exactly sure what that was, but I think it was probably using the Urim and Thummim, whatever the Urim and Thummim are. We're not exactly sure what the Urim and Thummim are. But what they probably were were two um, stones that were cut identically weighted, textured identically. The only thing different about them was that they're made out of different, uh, a different type of stone, so they were different colors. And God instructed that these two stones were to be kept in a little pocket, a little pouch on the inside of the high priest's ceremonial vest. When they wanted to know the will of God, when God instructed them to cast lots, they would somehow remove those stones. Some argue that it was by, by throwing them out and the way they landed told you the will of God. Or others suggest that the uh, high priest stuck his hand in there without peeking, pulled one out. And if it was the blue one, I don't know if either of them were blue, but 
Say it was the blue one, that meant yes, or the red one meant no, or whatever. Somehow, the Urim and Thummim communicated exactly the will of God. Now, wouldn't you love to have a Urim and Thummim today? Now, how often have you waited and wanted that phone call from God? Or that telegram? Some of you would like to have it in writing. This is my will for you. You know, determining the will of God is an important matter for Christians. Reminds me of a story. I may have told you this before. A couple of three uh, minister friends of mine were talking about how they determine the will of God when it comes to the offering plate. And one of them said, I draw a circle on the ground and I take the offering plate, throw the money up in the air. Whatever lands in that circle belongs to God for the work of the ministry. Whatever lands outside of the, the circle I use for my own personal needs. Next minister said, yeah, I do just about the same thing. I draw a line, throw the offering money into the air. Whatever lands on the right belongs to God for the work of the ministry. What's on the left I use for my personal need. And the third preacher said, that's almost exactly what I do. I take the offering plate, throw the money in the air. Whatever God wants, he keeps, and I take the rest. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to know that you've got the will of God right here in your hand? You could sit back, whenever you had a decision to make, just stick the hand in there, pull it out, and there it is, the will of God. Let me uh, suggest that this isn't really what Joshua did. This is not the way Joshua was functioning. See, before they even got to the point of casting lots or using the Urim and Thummim, Joshua had done a lot of important preparation and planning. He'd started out by sending out surveyors, a representative from each tribe, to go out through the land and divide it up into portions that were equal, not necessarily in size, but in value and in in livability and and, and fruitfulness. So these guys went out and they surveyed it. It's kind of like um, when you want to teach your children to be fair and you only have one candy bar. You let one of the children cut it in half and the other one gets to choose first. That way you're absolutely sure that that first child cut it to the micro-millimeter or whatever exactly in half. Well, the same thing happened. These guys went out not knowing who was going to get each piece, but they divided it up so that no matter which one they got, they would have been satisfied. There were two exceptions. There were two large pieces of territory, two large pieces of land, one in the southwest and another one up in the northeast. And these were set aside for the two huge tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Manasseh. And uh, Joshua cast lots between those two to decide which was which. And these two large pieces of territory were kind of like a a buffer, like brackets, for the other seven and a half tribes that were settled in between. Well, after sending out these, um, uh, these surveyors, Joshua then called a leader from each of the tribes to be present while the lots were cast. Now, that wasn't part of God's instructions back in Exodus 26. God didn't say anything about that, but it was smart. See, Joshua and Eliezer could have gone to the door of the tent of the meeting, cast lots, come back and said, listen, this is what you got, this is what you got, and explain this to everybody. But immediately there would have been suspicion, some grumbling, or maybe they cheated a little bit. You know, Joshua is an Ephraimite. Maybe he kind of helped out Ephraim a little bit. See, Joshua not only uh, is careful to maintain his integrity, he's careful to do that in a way that forestalls all of this suspicion. He does it in a way that's apparent to all. He wants to make sure that his integrity is beyond reproof. 
So he invites the leaders when the, uh, when the, casts, the lots are cast. And then finally, and most importantly, Joshua, it says in verse 5, did everything exactly as God commanded through Moses. See, Joshua already had the first five books of Moses. Moses had written them because Moses was dead. He had to have written them already. Joshua takes those books and he looks back to see exactly what God said to Moses. And he studies it and he considers it so that when he finally comes about dividing the land, he does it just like the scriptures say. Then after all of this is done, the lots are cast. Let me suggest to you that this is not at all different than how we determine the will of God. See, even with the Urim and Thummim, Joshua had to do his homework to make sure he had a clear picture of the situation. That was sending the surveyors out. And he had to turn to God for wisdom, to act with integrity, and to make sure that that integrity was above reproof. And then he considered the scriptures to make sure that he was acting according, consistent with the scriptures. And then the lots were cast. It's the same thing we do. When we have a decision to make, we have to do our homework to make sure that we understand the situation. We understand it clearly. We have to use the wisdom God has given us and turn to Him for the integrity. We have to be sure that our integrity is above reproof. And most importantly, we look at the Scriptures, at the Word of God, and are careful to follow it. And once we've done this procedure, we can be confident we've got the will of God. Usually by this time, we, we, we know what to do. If, however, you've gone through this whole procedure and you still have more than one option, flip a coin. Or just do what you feel like doing. You see, after you've gone through this procedure and honestly, before God sought His wisdom, honestly, done your homework, honestly, look at the Scripture, either option from our perspective would be okay. We've got to leave it to God to draw our heart toward one or the other, to control the coin, or whatever means He wants to use to show us His will. God is a capable, a powerful God, and He's not playing games with us. But He does want to involve us in the process. He does call us to think. He does call us to use His Word. He does call us to turn to Him for the wisdom that He promises so that we can act with integrity and that that integrity will be above reproof. God leads just as He promised, but He involves us in the process. And this is really um, the main theme of the section that we're looking at. God gives out of His grace, but He involves us in an active process of taking what He gives. We'll come back to that, but let me finish uh, just looking at the big picture. What the rest of these chapters is taken up with entirely is a description of the details of the inheritance. And it's those details that make these chapters such thick going. It uh, you know, there, there are cities you and I have never heard of, people we've never heard of, rivers, territories. A, a detailed description, and you read it, and pretty soon your eyes get crossed, and you're not exactly sure what's going on. But those details seem to be very important. Well, why go into so much detail? Why take this kind of trouble? Especially when it seems like this is awfully premature anyway. Uh, they had not conquered all of the territory. 
there were still many Canaanites living in the land. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 1, God says to Joshua, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And then in the next few verses, he describes some of the major blocks of unconquered territory, the, uh, the southern coastal area that the Philistines held, and the Sidonians up in the north, and in the northeast was all unconquered territory. Big blocks of it, huge, enormous pieces of the land. And not only that, but within each tribal inheritance, there were still pockets of resistance, still a high country that needed to be taken, still cities, fortresses that needed to be overrun. In every single one of the tribal inheritance, there was still enemy in the land. But God says in verses 6 and 7, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel for an inheritance as I, has, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He says, go ahead, divide it up, move in, start enjoying it. Settle it. Start farming, start ranching, start doing the things that you need to be doing. Enjoy what I've already given you. But realize there's a lot more to be done. There's a lot left to do. It's important for God to to detail the full inheritance. To excite the people of Israel about all that God gave to them. And to motivate them to take all that God had given. Well, this is exactly what God does for us in the New Testament. There we have a description of the riches that are ours in Christ. God goes into great detail telling us all that we have in Christ. I wish we had uh, seven chapters worth of time to describe some of these details. And it's interesting that the New Testament writers often refer to our inheritance, what we have in Christ, as our lot or our inheritance, intentionally using the same uh, words as back in Joshua. But let me just uh, describe a few of the riches that we have in Christ, a few details that I take out of the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. First of all, Paul says, we are chosen in Christ. That is, we are important to God. We are not mere tagalongs. We're precious and valuable individually to Him, and therefore we feel important. We feel valuable. Paul also says, in Christ we have a sure future. We don't fear anything that comes into our lives because we know that God is taking care of us. Losing a job, not having a spouse, uh, illness financial problems, none of these things shake our confidence or shake our security because our security is found in in God and His plans for us. Also, we look forward to uh, an eternity free from sin and pain and our present problems fade as we consider that, that future with God. Paul also says, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We are free from sin and guilt and the confusion that that brings. Our pasts are past, and they don't rob us of our present and future joy. He also says we were created, or excuse me, we, were, we are seated in authority in Christ. That is, we can identify and repel the schemes of the enemy. We can say no to temptation and sin, uh, anger and, and lust and self-pity. And all these things are already conquered. 
We were created in Christ for good works. We see God taking our character, making it like His Son. We begin to love unselfishly and manifest that love by giving away our time and our energy, our, our, our financial and emotional resources to meet the needs of others. We're fully committed to the advance of the gospel, both in our, in our families and in our workplaces and around the world. Well, these are just a taste of what we have in Christ. I only looked at the first two chapters of Ephesians to get these. There's more. There's a lot more. But I think this is enough to make the point. I mean, this is all the riches that we have in Christ. But how much of these do we enjoy? Any of us. You see, none of us is living in unoccupied territory. None of us is living in completely cleared territory. We struggle with believing that we're valuable with God. We don't feel valuable. We uh, do fear our future. Things that happen do shake our confidence in God. We still struggle with guilt. We're still confused by it. We still are overwhelmed by the enemy and give in to temptations of every kind. We uh, refuse to look at ourselves and take the things in our character to Christ that we see that are there that are still mean and petty, pulling us away from God. We refuse to give away of our resources either because we're embarrassed or we're lazy or we want to hoard our time and our energy and our money just to use on ourselves. And we cower at the prospect of sharing the gospel with someone, with anyone. You see, the Canaanite is still in our land. But just as God, through Joshua, defeated the power of the enemy, you see, by the end of chapter 12, all of the huge standing armies of the Canaanites had been wiped out. All of the big, strong fortresses had been taken. God had defeated the strength of the enemy. Just as God did that through Joshua, through Christ, God has defeated the strength of the enemy in our lives. Our flesh, our lack of faith. The, the forces of the devil. And just as God called on the people of Israel to boldly, confidently go after those areas that were still held by the Canaanites. And to do that trusting Him, because it is still Him who does the work. God calls us to boldly, confidently, aggressively go after those areas in our life that still need to be taken. To do it completely depending on Him, because it is still He or Him who does the work. Let me uh, stay on this point just a little bit longer because there's so much confusion, I think, today about the relationship between uh, faith and our works and, uh, and God's grace. You see, God gave the land to Israel, but he involved them in an active process of taking it. And that process required faith. First of all, they had to really believe God that it was worth it to, to drive the enemy out. 
Unfortunately, most of the uh, tribes decided that it was much better just to enjoy what they had, to sit back, to farm, to leave the enemy comfortably in the land as long as they stayed kind of in their own territory. But it didn't work that way. God said, you drive them out or they'll destroy you. And we see from history that they destroyed Israel. They left the enemy in the land. They left them comfortably sitting there. And eventually the enemy drew their hearts away from God and the nation was destroyed. Well, in the same way, we have to, to by faith, believe that it's worth going after those things in our lives that still need to be taken. That it's not all right just to sit and let these things remain comfortably in our life because they'll destroy us. We've got to learn from the lesson of Israel and fear leaving unconquered territory comfortably in our lives. It also required faith to believe that they'd have success, that they wouldn't be destroyed in the process. Often when we look at the things in our lives, the habits, the, um, the areas of selfishness, the confusion... The, the, the pains from our, our childhood, the, the, the things that really have a grip on us, as we look at those things and contemplate attacking those in the power of the Spirit, depending on the Lord, we honestly feel that if we do that, we will be destroyed. And I'm sure the people of Israel went through those same emotions. And it takes faith to believe that, no, God is going to drive them out before us. We will not be destroyed. And it requires faith in that They had to depend for each little victory on the Lord. Because, again, it was still the Lord who was accomplishing the work. And we do the same. We depend on Him for each little victory. There's an awful lot of confusion. Part of it just comes from the type of language we see here in Joshua. Earlier in Joshua, in the first chapter, God promised Joshua, I will give you this land as an inheritance. Now God says, I gave it to you. So in a sense, the inheritance is theirs. But there's still some taking to be done. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 1, it's clear that Christ has already acquired our inheritance. We did nothing to deserve it. It is purely His grace that has has purchased it. It is purely His grace that gives it to us. But see, a lot of people take that and say, therefore, what we have to do is just sit back and enjoy what God has given us. In fact, it's suggested that any effort on our part is of the flesh. Instead, we sit back and God hands us all that we have in Christ. Or it's even sometimes suggested that if you're not enjoying your full inheritance, if you're not... Um, finding absolute victory over sin and guilt, if you're not seeing the power of God manifest in your ministry with great success, if you're not healthy and wealthy, there's something wrong with your faith. Because after all, hasn't God, hasn't Christ already won the victory? Well, see, I think Joshua helps balance our understanding. God did say, To the people, go in, divide it up, enjoy what I've already given you. Rest in it. But he didn't say, sit back and watch me drive out the Canaanite. He said, you go after the Canaanite and I will drive them out before you. In um, the book of Hebrews, the writer says, we 
who believe have entered that rest. But then he also says later on, let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest. You see, God could have snapped his fingers and all the Canaanites would have been gone. But he didn't. And God could snap his fingers and every one of your problems and struggles would be gone. But he doesn't. Many of the things in your life will not disappear simply and only by realizing that Christ has the victory. As we look at Scripture, I think it becomes clear that true faith is persistently active. Faith perseveres in the face of protracted struggle. That's true faith. Not a magic wand that we wave over our problems and they disappear. But true faith enables us to keep fighting. Maybe for years. Maybe for your whole lifetime. But true faith enables us not to give up. In one sense, our inheritance is a reward. It's a reward none of us have completely received. In fact, none of us will ultimately or finally receive it in this lifetime. And even though we work hard for that reward, it's not as if we earn it by our performance or that our efforts actually accomplish it on their own. Any more than, than, than my children earn the treat of being taken out for pizza for doing their chores without complaining. Now, their, their work does not accomplish that. They should do their chores. And the fact is, when they do their chores, I end up working as hard as they do to accomplish it. Their chores are never done perfectly. But as I see their hearts and their desire to please, I want to reward that heart in them. And this is the heart of our Father as well. As He sees our hearts demonstrated in our actions, He desires to reward us. You see, it is God's grace that enables Him to accept our efforts as flawed and as feeble as they are. It's not only His grace that allows Him to accept our efforts even with their defects, but it's His grace that credits them to us, even though it's He who is working out these good works in our life. He still credits them to us. And it is His grace that rewards us for doing them, even though they are no more than our duty. God's grace is enormous. And the fact that we put out effort does not detract from that grace, does not shift the credit to us, but leaves it fully on God's activity in our lives. But it does require that we work. Jesus said, don't work for that which perishes, but work for that which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He says, work for that which the Son of Man gives to you. It is still He who gives it. Well, in our passage, there are three um, specific examples of people, uh, or of how people dealt with these challenges. 
The first is a bad example. These aren't in the order they show up in the scriptures. This is just my organization. But the first is the the bad example of the uh, sons of Joseph. The land's already been divided up. And these uh, uh, members of the tribe of Joseph, they come up to, to Joshua and Eliezer and say, Listen, give us a different piece. Ours is too small. And Joshua scratches his head and says, That's not too small. Just clear out some forest and drive out the Canaanites. And you've got plenty of land. And they said, Well, but the Canaanites are strong. And they've got chariots of iron. See, that was the real problem. It wasn't that their land was too small. It's that they didn't want to deal with the Canaanites in the land. They wanted to be taken out and given someplace where the Canaanites were already cleared out. And Joshua said, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. The only way to get through it is to get through it. The only way to go is to go. Trust God. He'll clear them out before you. He is not limited by our limitations. The next example is of the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, part of the reason I mention these women is because I know that some of uh, you here are expectant parents. And in case you had a a girl child, these are some possible names you could pick. They're uh, listed over in chapter 17. There's Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terzah. My personal favorites and recommendation would be Machla or Hagla. Those, uh, your daughter would rise up and call you blessed if you chose one of those for her. But you see, these five women, they came up to uh, Joshua and Eliezer. And they said, listen, our father died without having any male descendants, without having any sons. And you've got to realize, in, in these days, this was a man's world. Inheritance were passed down through the male descendants. And they came up and said, our father had no male descendants before he died. So give us the property. Give us the territory and we'll take it. We'll clear out those Canaanites just like everybody else. And they didn't say, oh, we're poor women. What can we do in a man's world? They said, no. We trust God. God's as able to use us as he is to any of these other guys. It's not our strength we're dependent on anyway. It's God's. They said, give us the land. We'll go for it. Is that of, of Caleb. He's my favorite. There's a man who had it figured out, a man of, of true faith. His story is in the last half of chapters 14 and, and 15. In chapter 14, when the land is about to be divided up, Caleb marches up to Joshua and Eliezer and, says, and, and reminds them that 45 years earlier, He had been part of the commando team that was sent in behind enemy lines to scout out the territory, to see what the defenses were, to see what the land was like. And these 12 men went through the land. And they came out and they all agreed, the land is beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey. And they all agreed, the Canaanites are strong. And what really frightened them was the fact that the Anakim were there, the Anakites. These were huge men, powerful warriors that could take whatever territory they wanted. They held some of the most beautiful and best land in what was later to be uh, Judah. And when the people heard that the Anakites, the Anakim were there, 
They became frightened. In fact, the way the spies put it is, we're like grasshoppers next to these guys. They're huge. And they're fortified. And they're powerful. People of Israel probably had already heard of these giants, all the way back perhaps even as far as Egypt. And they were terrified at the prospect of facing these guys. Well, I'm sure all 12 men were frightened. But Caleb says, wait a minute. God's with us. He's removed their protection. He can do it. Let's go. And Joshua agreed with him. But the other 10 men said no. And they were afraid. And they allowed their fear to frighten the rest of the congregation, the rest of the the Israelites. And as a result, they all chickened out. And they spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert. That whole generation dying off in the desert. Only Joshua and Caleb went in the land. And God promised Caleb, not only are you going in the land, but I'm going to give you that exact territory that the Anakim hold. That's yours. So listen to uh, Caleb 45 years later. Reading from chapter 14, verse 10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years, since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there. And their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as God has said. He said, give me what I've been waiting for for the last 45 years. And that is a chance to see God drive these giants out. I've known all along you could do it. Now I want to see it happen. He didn't say, well, that was 45 years ago. Leave this kind of thing to the younger men. They know the new ways of doing these kinds of things. And he didn't become withdrawn and embittered that nobody had appreciated what he tried to do 45 years ago. Nobody had valued his ministry then. And he didn't resent the fact that he had to wander around in the desert for 40 years along with everybody else because of their foolishness, not his own. You see, Joshua, or excuse me, Caleb was a Kenite. That wasn't originally part of Israel. They lived down in Edom. And he could have said, hey, shine these people on. I'm going back to Edom going to get myself a ranch, an RV, a little cabin up in the hills of Edom. Let them suffer for their foolishness. I've done my share. He didn't come up with any excuses. His excuses don't do any good. Reasons are important because we want to have a clear picture of what we're dealing with, what we're up against. But excuses don't get us anywhere. Joshua will have none of those. He says, let's go. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 15. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the Anakites, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, descendants of Anak. He went in and he thrashed those giants. Not only that, he challenges and stimulates the younger people to faith, to courage. Listen to verse 15. From there he marched against the people living in Debur, formerly called Kareth Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kareth Sefer. 
Athan, uh, excuse me, Othniel, son of Kinez, Caleb's brother, took it. So, God, uh, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Now that was a shrewd move. See, back in those days, um, marriages were arranged. The father got to decide who his daughter would marry. I'm sure many of you here would love to have that right back, especially considering some of the people your daughters bring home. But that was the way it was arranged back then. And Caleb knew the only way you can drive out Canaanites, the only way especially you can drive out Anakim, is by faith. They'd learned this lesson back in chapter 7 when the little army of Ai routed the whole Israelite army because they had not obeyed God. Josh, or Caleb knew that the only way for victory is to trust God and to obey Him exactly. And so what he did was he found a man of faith and courage for his daughter. And he also drove out more Canaanites. Now, he could have done it. He had already been doing it all along. God had given him success. He could have driven these people out. But instead, he challenges younger men to be men of courage and of faith. In fact, um, Othniel, the man who became his son-in-law, after Joshua dies, becomes the next leader of Israel. He's the first of the judges. The story is in, in, in Judges chapter 3. Well, as I look around Christianity today, I see that God has given us many Caleb's. Last month, Billy Graham turned 70. You know, here's a man whose humility and integrity are, are uh, uh, recognized, acknowledged, even by his detractors. There's a man who has been preaching the same gospel today with the same vigor as he did 45 years ago. Last week, J. Vernon McGee died. Still faithful, still teaching through his daily through the Bible series. Last summer, um, David Roper's father, Harlan Roper, went to be with the Lord. A man who had been faithful, a man who had stayed in the race till the end. John Mitchell is still going at 93. Henrietta Mears and Witherall Johnson, two women who never slowed, never were distracted from their commitment to growth in the Lord and ministry. And as I look around here, I see that God has blessed us with many Caleb's. In the Salt Company, the singles group, we have a young man in his mid-80s. Comes uh, as regularly as he can, Herman Myers. But Herman is a Caleb. Here's a man whose heart is still after the Lord, still wants to grow, still wants to see God take new territory. Herman paints houses, but he doesn't do it any longer to supply his needs. He does it so that he can give the proceeds to missions. His body is slowing down. Uh, Herman gets depressed, sometimes for long periods of time, and he's asked for prayer about that. But his heart for the Lord and his heart for ministry and for challenging younger men and women is stronger than it's ever been. Or take Cloud and Barb Levitt. Their ministry, they're in their early 60s. I checked out to make sure I was given permission to give their age. 
I'm not going to give it exact. But their ministry to the Indians of Suriname and Brazil is still strong. Brian Fisher, who was down there a couple years ago with Claude, says, you ought to see that man with a machete. He could clear a freeway through the jungle. Hacking vines just like Caleb was hacking giants. And George and Frida Peltier. When George retired three years ago, he and Frida didn't just sit back and uh, start feathering their nest. George enrolled in the study center and graduated last year. And God has opened all kinds of ministry before these people. Uh, Pastoring the church up in Stanley. Um, Leading a couple growth groups down here. George is our latest addition to the elders. In fact, uh, two, or last Monday, when uh, we had an elders meeting, two of the men who just shared about their life and their struggles in their life with the Lord were George Peltier and Hardin Young. What an encouragement to hear these men of God still seeking unconquered territory. Now, sure, they enjoy what God has already accomplished. Sure, there's rest. Sure, there's, there's delight in what God has done in their lives. But they don't just sit back. They say, God, there's more to take and let's go after it. And as I look around, I have a list up here before me of, of dozens of Caleb's. Now, I don't want to suggest that these people are old. Um, age is actually a matter of perspective. When I was a new Christian in my late teens, I was sharing with my home church about an opportunity God gave me to share the gospel with a man in Central Park in New York. I was telling the church, this was an old guy, probably in his 30s. (laughs) Like I said, old is is, is a matter of perspective. These are mature people among us. But as I look out and I see the ministry that God is having in these people's lives, the ministry to shut-ins, and, and nursing homes, the ministry just of discipling and encouraging. I, I hesitate to read the list just because I know that it's only a small fraction and there are many, many Caleb's that God has given. As I look at these people, I realize that they have discovered the secret of life, the secret of vitality. That is, follow the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and strength. Every last drop of it. Now I want to challenge the older men and women among us. This church has at times been accused of uh, focusing on the young, of only using young people in ministry. Well, don't settle for that. We need you. Like Caleb, don't get hung up on whether or not Your ministry has been appreciated, whether you've been sought out. Remember, it's the Lord Jesus whom you serve. Seek Him. Be looking to Him to take new territory in your lives, to to rout out the enemy, both those that that remain and those who've crept back in into your attitudes, the, the selfishness or the lack of joy that is creeping into your attitudes. Maybe the shortness that comes as a result of being a little less comfortable in your body. The tendency to pull out and away. Turn to the Lord and confront these things aggressively in the power of His Spirit and see Him drive the enemy out in front of you. And look around you. There are needs around us. We need 
foster grandparents for the, for the uh, uh, children of our single parents. We need people of your wisdom and experience in our Sunday schools. We need ministry to shut-ins. We need a far more aggressive ministry in this church to the seniors in this church. Well, look around. See what the needs are. Take those needs to your Lord. See if He might use you as an instrument in meeting needs. Find other people of vision like yourself and dream dreams together of what God can accomplish among us. We need your ministry. We need you to be aggressive like Caleb. And younger men and women, look around. Find these Caleb's. Watch them. Learn from them. Ask them to teach you. We all together have to reject the world's lie that retirement is the goal of life. Don't let the enemy seduce you into going after things that promise rest and peace and satisfaction and joy, but leave you dissatisfied and frustrated and empty. We've got older Caleb's. We've got people who are older among us who aren't Caleb's as well. It's never too late. Get up and go after it. And younger people, be young Caleb's on your way to becoming older Caleb's. You're created for great things. Don't settle for anything less. As the Psalm 92 puts it, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no wickedness in him. Well, let's pray. Lord, I do praise you for the inheritance that you've given us in Christ. That you've given us just almost incomprehensible riches. And Lord, we enjoy those and we rest in them. We delight in what you've done. Thank you that that faith allows us to enjoy what you've done. But Lord, we also want to go after the Canaanites still in our land. We want to be aggressive and see you work powerfully. We want to trust you that it's worth doing. We want to trust you that you will protect us, that we won't be destroyed in the process. We want to trust you to accomplish the work because it's clear to us that we don't have the the power in ourselves. Lord, I praise you for the examples you've given us. Praise you for Caleb. We want to be like him. Trusting you, both in our youth and in our old age. We want to be aggressive, seeing you work, seeing the power of your Spirit in our lives and our ministries. Lord, make us like your Son. Amen.